You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy. I'm Chris North and what you're about to listen to was originally broadcast as part of Pythagoras' Trousers, a science and engineering show on Radio Cardiff. In the lead up to Christmas, there's often a lot of stories here about uh, what the star of Bethlehem might really have been. Was it a comet? Was it a meteor? Was it a supernova in the sky? One of the things that's often... Uh, theorises that there was a supernova, a brightening of one particular star that shone up uh, in one part of the sky, and maybe that's the uh, original uh, reason for that uh, that story in the uh, in, in the Bible and so on. But when is a supernova not a supernova? So a rather tangential link from the Star of Bethlehem to this month's uh, main story, which is uh, a, a supernova discovered uh, last year. Um, except that maybe it wasn't a supernova. That's where we're going with this. Uh, and I'm joined by uh, Edward Gomez from Las Comas Observatory. Hi, Chris. And uh, Dr Morgan Fraser from University College Dublin uh, over in Ireland. Hello. So uh, welcome, both of you. Um, now, this was a supernova discovered in 2015 uh, by the Assassin Network uh, and then also looked at by a lot of other observatories. So, so Edward, for, first to you uh, quickly, what's, what's the... Assassin Network, and how was this thing discovered? How do these work? Uh, so uh, they are survey telescopes, and uh, the uh, the Assassin uh, that uh, found this strange event um, was actually based inside the observatory, um, one of the Las Cumbres observatories. It's actually based inside the, uh, the two-metre observatory on uh, the island of Maui. Uh, that we run. And actually, a lot of uh, school kids in the UK use that uh, that telescope quite a lot. Um, it's uh, it's a it's a series of cameras attached to what are essentially uh, the type of lenses that you use for doing sports photography and sports. Uh, so that they're, they're really um, low reflection Nikon lenses, um, and there's a, there's a bank of them. I think there's uh, uh, there's four, uh, and the 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 lenses are, and the cameras are, are sort of arranged in a way so you get a big portion of the sky. And it basically just surveys looking for transient things, things that change in the night sky. And, and Assassin, it, it's an acronym that stands for All Sky Survey Network or something. I can't remember yes, exactly. Yes, that's right, yeah. Um, so it's, it's this, this sequence of, uh, as you say, look at, look at the whole sky. And this thing, was, uh, this thing was found back in 2015. So it goes by the, the phone number, if you like, of Assassin 15LH. Um, the, the catalogue number and, and Morgan when when this was found it, it was unusual compared it was seen as thought to be a supernova but even then it was very unusual for a supernova right yes so when when this object was first spotted um, I think people's immediate reaction was it's something very bright it's in a distant galaxy this is going to be a supernova which is is the explosion of a, a massive star but even at that point we knew it couldn't be a normal supernova because it was too bright um, in fact, Assassin 15LH is maybe 50, 100 times brighter than a typical normal supernova. So it fell into the category of superluminous supernovae, um, where probably the supernova is extra bright because there's an additional source of energy, um, perhaps from a very rapidly spinning neutron star or black hole, so a very compact object in the heart of the supernova that pumps out additional energy. That was the idea that people had at the start of this year. Um, and that was probably why this object attracted so much so much attention and follow-up observations. So it was certainly, it was certainly interesting. The, the main thing with seeing any supernova, particularly a very unusual one, is actually 
tracking it and following it up and, and keeping looking at it because su- supernovae you might think flash and then are gone but Edward they, they do hang around for a little while yeah that's right there are some supernovae so uh, studying how they uh, they fade after uh, their initial brightening so su- actually supernovae get brighter it's not just a, a flash in a few microseconds they do get brighter over quite a short period um, and then they uh, they dim over well it can be uh, a long, long period, actually. So um, weeks, are we talking? Uh, weeks can be months. Uh, a colleague of mine's been studying one for uh, a few years that hasn't started dimming yet. Wow. Uh, and so it's uh, it's something which is actually very key to understanding supernovae is how they they fade away. And that's something where this is, you say understanding supernovae, because supernovae, it's, as, as Morgan said, it's the explosion of a massive star, which... Um, there's a whole uh, a whole host of things that get included in that description. And, and Morgan, explosions of massive stars come in all sorts of, uh, well, shapes and sizes, I was going to say, but um, they're all kind of round. But uh, <laughs> there's a lot of different varieties in what might be thought of as a supernova itself. There, there is. Um, but for the sort of supernova we're, we're talking about, which come from massive stars, there's one thing they all have in common, and that's that, they're all found in in star forming regions. So what that what that means is, if you look at a galaxy, um, you'll find that some galaxies are very blue, um, and that's because they're forming a lot of stars right now. These stars only live for a few tens of millions of years before they explode as as supernovae. So this was actually what gave us the first clue that assassin 15 lh was maybe something different because where it was found was not in one of these these star forming blue galaxies rather it was found in in the complete opposite in a very red galaxy which means it's got a very old stellar population with no massive stars that can explode as as a supernova and and identifying those, those galaxies is something that the Assassin Network and even possibly the, the Las Cumbras Observatory is the very big telescopes that you've got in Las Cumbras, those two-meter class, those one-meter class telescopes, so large, able to gather a lot of light. To actually pick out the type of galaxy this is, it was so distant. That needed the, the Hubble Space Telescope and a lot of other things, Edward. It's, it's not just these. It's a lot of other things. Um, what, to, to study these type of things? Yeah, or this one gal- in particular? Yeah, that's galaxies. right. Studying, uh, and, and really it depends on, on brightness. Everything is about, is about brightness and colour uh, in astronomy. So you, you know, you, the, the colour will depend on what type of telescope you can use and the brightness will, uh, will depend on what type of um, uh, size of telescope you can use. And uh, it's really matching those things so that you've, you've got something which is... Uh, the, uh, just big enough so that you can see this thing and uh, that it can see it in the right range of colours. Mm. Now, now, Morgan, you said that it being in a red galaxy was the the, the first clue that this was uh, unusual. Uh, there were lots of other reasons to think that this, what we've been calling a supernova, wasn't a supernova. In what other way was it was it different? Well, one of the other clues that uh, pointed towards something peculiar going on was if you look at... Uh, the spectrum of this this event. Now, a spectrum is what you get if you pass light through a prism. You split it up into into different colors, and it can tell you something about what uh, what the composition of that material is, what elements are present, whether it's hydrogen, helium, oxygen, other elements like that. And the spectrum of assassin fifteen LH had some some superficial similarities. 
to uh, to supernova when it was first discovered. Um, and again, this is perhaps some of the reason why people initially thought and argued that, that this was a supernova. But um, it didn't it didn't show the the evolution over time that we would expect from a supernova. That spectrum didn't really change in the way that we would expect it to if this was a supernova explosion. And so, with with all these things that are changing, that are not are not what you expect. Uh, this thing, which surely must have been a supernova, it looked like a supernova at first glance. It kind of smelt like a supernova when you look at the spectrum, but but things are then not as they seem. That then starts a whole process of well, what else could it be? What it, else can flash like that? Exactly. So when you put together these sort of inconsistencies with it being a supernova, it's in the wrong sort of galaxy. The spectrum seems different. Uh, we started to consider alternate explanations. Now, we know that we need something that can give you an awful lot of energy. Now, whatever, whatever this object is, it's very, very luminous. It's very energetic. And that immediately limits the number of possible, possible explanations you can have. Um, and in fact, the only other way of getting this sort of amount of energy out is something involving... Uh, a supermassive black hole swallowing a star. Um, this was also consistent with the location of, of Assassin 15LH, um, which within its galaxy, which remember is only a, a very fuzzy blob on the sky, Assassin 15LH seemed to be banging the center of that. Now that's where we, we think that a massive black hole resides, in the center of pretty much all, all big galaxies. When I say massive, here I mean a black hole about 100 million, a billion times the mass of our sun. So, so that's that's where we think, uh, where where we started to move towards, and and the sort of explanation we started to to try and to try and consider whether Assassin 15LH could be connected to that central black hole. And, and we talk about these central black holes that, are, that, that it sounds like a, a, a crazy thing to have such a massive black hole in the in the middle of a galaxy, but it, it's not unusual, as, as Morgan alluded to there. The, these things are, we think, very common. Yeah, that's right. We think that you know all all galaxies essentially have one at the centre. We're not, actually not really sure how they get ga- uh, galaxies get these supermassive black holes in the centre because uh, they don't really um, the way that we we know you can form black holes is through uh, a supernova through, a, through a, a massive star exploding but that won't give you that'll give you something which is you know a few times the mass of the sun not a hundred million a, a thousand you know a thousand million a billion times the size of the, uh, the mass of the sun so we're really unsure how these things get there but by looking at the motion of stars in a galaxy particularly close to the very center of a galaxy there has to be something that we can't see that's very massive and very dense uh, to produce this type of motion in the stars. And so that's how we infer the existence. And it's those stars that are near the black hole that, that have ended up being uh, part of the, the key in this clue, Morgan. So what, how, what, what is the, the, the best theory or the favourite theory at the moment for what this might be? So our, our, our best idea at the moment is that around that central supermassive black hole, you have stars orbiting you have quite a lot of stars in the center of a galaxy and once in a while maybe once every hundred thousand years one of those stars will get knocked off its orbit um, this could happen when it passes too close to another star 
um, or perhaps could be could be caused by by a few other different reasons. When that star passes too close to the central black hole, um, what happens is the force of gravity from the black hole is stronger on one side of the star than the other. So we call this a tidal force, and it's actually the same sort of uh, same sort of effect as give rise to the tides on the Earth. Um, it's that gravitational tug. Hmm. Now, the star can actually be pulled apart by this tidal force. The material from the star, a lot of that will fall onto the black hole, spiral around, and and ultimately be swallowed by it. Um, in the process of doing so, it can heat up and give off a tremendous burst of light and radiation that we would then see as as assassin 15LH. And this this sounds like a, um, a well, it sounds like a bit of a harebrained idea that this thing's gonna yeah. gonna work. But this is a, this is a, a, a rigorously well, fairly rigorously calculated to be a, a thing yeah, that could it, happen, right? It, it's something that was actually first. It's always nice in science when you have something that's predicted before it's observed. Um, so tidal disruption events, this sort of process, was first uh, first predicted over thirty years ago. Um, and there's a paper by by Martin Rees at, at Cambridge who set out some of the, the observational characteristics of these events and showed how they, they could happen. Um, since then, there's been a lot more sophisticated work done on understanding the theory behind them, um, computer simulations and so on. But really, it's only by, by finding tidal disruption events that, uh, and observing them that you can, you can test the theory. Uh, and this has been done now in a handful of cases. We have maybe a few dozen uh, tidal disruption events, but none as bright as Assassin 15LH. Um, which is, of course, what makes it quite uh, quite exceptional and unique. It's certainly a, a, a very remarkable event to thought about this this star spiraling around, being ripped apart, and then giving off a a flash of light uh, as it enters its its final death throes over the course of you know weeks weeks or months and gradually fades. And and you said to understand these, we need to make observations, and that's largely where these big networks come in because we can't predict where these are going to happen that's where last comers observatory and other networks really comes to the fore I guess. It, well yeah that's right it's actually a, a big partnership between all the the different types of network that are out, that are out there surveys like assassin and you know there are quite a lot of these uh these type of telescopes which take a very shallow look but a regular look of the whole night sky like assassin um, the uh, large-scale synoptic telescope, which um, will will do this in actually quite a lot of detail when it comes online, and uh, things like pan stars and things like that are, are designed to desurvey telescopes. They identify things, but they can't then go back and do any more detail. And then um, networks like Las Cumbres then go back and and uh, can respond very very rapidly uh, to these things when they flare up. Uh, things in the transient universe like supernovae um tidal disruption events um exoplanets you know and all of those type of things and then space-based uh uh, telescopes which you can use to get uh observations which you can't get from the ground uh once that uh, just the atmosphere blocks either too much of the light or the the twinkling of the atmosphere would uh totally obscure this this really unique phenomenon 
and and these these unique phenomena that you see this this is the, a very uh, unusual one. Um, uh, so Morgan, are you, are you still watching uh, Assassin Fifteen LH uh, in great detail? We are. So um, really, what we'd like to do now at this point is to study the galaxy that it that it occurred in. Um, so we can try to, for example, measure the mass of the black hole that's that's within that galaxy. Um, that's difficult to do at the moment because Assassin Assassin Fifteen LH is still is still present, is still bright, and until its light fades away completely, um, it's hard to see the underlying host galaxy. So we're con- continuing to to observe this event. Um, also, we're continuing to monitor along with with surveys like PanStars um, and Assassin. We're we're continuing to monitor the sky to try and find other examples of this. Um, we know that that these kind of tidal disruption events are very rare. In fact, they're even more rare than than supernovae. But uh, if you look at the entire sky every night, as, as surveys are able to do now, um, we we can actually find them. So hopefully over the coming years, with missions like uh, like Gaia, which is also quite good at finding finding transients, we can uh, we can pick up a whole lot more of these. And then I guess feed them through to all these networks that Ed was discussing to exactly, to and, uh, and then send them. send them to LCOGT and and other facilities to get the the follow up observations we need. Uh, it's uh, it's an exciting thing to be involved. There's not many things in astronomy that change very quickly. So no, it's, uh, that's right. And yeah. it's actually a, quite a unique time to be in astronomy because all these these different components are now in place, working together, and um, able to hand off like the uh, between each other. I think it's. I really hope that it's uh, a time where we'll be able to see more of these things because the the. The idea that we can communicate and the will to collaborate between all these different things is there. I know one of the one of the things that's a challenge for all this is that part of the, one of the properties of the Assassin Network is that it's the All Sky Automated Survey Network um, because you can't have people looking at these images to see what's there. You have to get computers doing it and making a first cut at going, that's boring, that's boring, that's boring, that's boring. Yeah. Oh, there's something interesting. Yeah, or oh, that's the same, that's yeah, the same, yeah. yeah. Nothing's changed, nothing's changed. Oh, something's, something's got brighter, something's got dimmer, whatever. And and when when this first came out, Morgan, how were, how were you first pr- uh, prompted that this was an, an interesting event? Was it, do you just get an email or how does that all work? So, I mean, there's... Like you say, it is a problem at the moment that there are nearly too many transients found, um, and we have to find some way of filtering through them to find find the interesting ones. Um, so how we were first alerted to Assassin Fifteen LH was through a sort of a circular called the Astronomer's Telegram, where which, which um, are not telegrams was, anymore. We should point no, out. Which are not telegrams. No, <laughs> no, they're by email. Um, where astronomers can send out an instant report to thousands of astronomers worldwide, going. We found something interesting, um, but it's true. There's there's large numbers of events that don't get follow up observations because we just don't have the the telescope resources to do that, or maybe because we don't notice what's what's interesting about them. So there's a lot of work going on at the moment uh, to try and get more clever with how we we find these events, and in particular using a technique called machine learning, where we actually teach computers to spot interesting patterns in data. So this is using the same sort of thing as, as Google and Facebook use to, to index the World Wide Web. Uh, we're trying to use to find peculiar supernovae. 
one might say what what the internet and technology was designed for rather than sharing photos of each other's children which is yeah. <laughs> or, or cats <laughs> yes, yeah. um so uh, it's it's certainly astronomy is going well it has been over the last decade or two decades become a lot more uh, heavily uh, computer based and and that's certainly uh, due to due to continue and and who knows i mean we maybe will get uh, assassin 17 something or other uh, next year that we'll have lots more interesting things uh, to talk about um with other events so it's uh, uh look forward to following this one and finding out whether there's uh, any more uh, revelations about this event or any others so uh, uh morgan fraser from university college dublin thanks very much thank you well, Edward, this has certainly been an exciting event. These unpredictable things are always, uh, always fun. Yeah, they're really nice. It also shows that uh, science is full of questions rather than full of answers. You know, we had a thing which we thought we knew everything about, and actually we turned out, uh, from looking at it in more detail, to have been totally wrong the first time, and it was more weird and unexpected than we'd anticipated. It's also something that Morgan touched on with the... That it was nice to have the theory of these things should exist beforehand and then, and then observe. And that's actually almost the other way around to the way astronomy normally works. Normally astronomers see something, or a lot of discoveries in astronomy are seeing something unusual and going, huh, well that's odd, what could that be? And then theorists scramble to explain it. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's also nice that this was something that uh, Lord Rees, um, yeah. the Astronomer Royal, worked on and back in... Uh, I guess it was the 80s and you know that's that's also something quite nice that you can work on something um, which uh, takes decades to to actually be found um, and you know it really makes it worthwhile. Uh, Something that has taken decades to be found of course is is uh, gravitational waves um, which uh, were one of the big stories from from this year they just won the physics world breakthrough of the year um i know here here in the uk and there's other international awards going out to them um the 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 whole ligo team has picked up a whole host of uh, of awards it's it's been quite an exciting year for lots of discoveries like that yeah it has i i'm Im- immensely pleased that uh the uh, the discovery of gravitational waves the the announcement as well was much better than I thought it was going to be, too. I mean, there was such a strong signal from from two black holes colliding that we didn't expect at all. We thought that it was going to be two neutron stars. Mm, yeah. um, and these things were much more massive than we thought possible. And they also surprised us in that there was no, there was no visible electromagnetic light um, that we could see to, as, a, as a counterpart to this. Yeah, so I mean, for, for those for those for those who don't remember, this is back in February. This was announced: two black holes, each of which was about thirty times the mass of our sun. Yeah. Now we talked about in this story, black holes are formed, we think, mostly by the explosion of massive stars. Well, to get get a star, a black hole that's thirty times the mass of the sun, the original star must have been oh, 60, 70, 80, yeah, 100. hundred. Um, and and we don't really understand how those stars form and evolve very well because no. we don't see them very often. No, we? that's right. In fact. Um, Probably about 18 months ago, there was uh, a, a story about somebody had found uh, some stars that were that sort of size. Mm. And this was this was the first time that we'd seen them. Yeah. And I know there's, there's some in the middle of the large Magellanic Cloud, the nearest dwarf galaxy to our own. I think it goes by the name of R136, because such things never have yeah. exciting names. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the, yeah, you're right. The, uh, this uh, this kind of size, which are which are are remarkable, and and LIGO, of course, is now in its second observing run. So that started uh, earlier this month, and that's going to continue through till uh, sort of the middle of next year. I think it'll take a short break over over Christmas. 
Um, so well, uh, not too short because the the sec the second gravitational wave event was on Boxing Day, wasn't it last year? It was last year. So yeah, so say. you know that could be uh, another Christmas miracle for us. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of work has to go on to keep the detectors in lock. So that'll be largely why it takes a little break over the uh, over the, the sort of the festive season while while uh, people go home and ho- hope we don't miss anything uh, very exciting. Uh-huh. But uh, then it will continue for another few months. And we've got the Virgo detector in uh, Italy, the Italian-French detector, uh, which is uh, slightly smaller, but uh, a very similar kind of technology behind it to join the network, join this international network. And that's essential, really, for being able to triangulate the signals better Mm. because it's very difficult for us to, from just the two in the US, the two LIGO detectors in the US, to be able to pinpoint on the sky where what the origin was of gravitational waves with so the third detector that's on the other side of the world that's going to be uh, a much much easier thing to do it's still going to be a fairly large area mm. um but it's not going to be you know a ring um yeah. so yeah so fingers crossed that virgo is is then up and running and gets linked in with the with the system and observing run two who knows that ligo uh, the two the LIGO detectors detected, well, they have to say two, nearly three, because there's one that's a bit borderline of whether it was real or not. Um, so two or three in the last run, and, and unless it got really lucky uh, in that first run, there should be more to come this time around. So that's certainly something to keep your ears open for in, uh, in 2017. And there was also Lisa Pathfinder. Too. That's true. Yeah, Lisa Pathfinder uh, comes to the end of its science mission now, I believe, but that's uh, been useful for doing a technology demonstrator for detecting gravitational waves. And this actually brings us back to the the main story we're talking about with this this uh, in spiral and swallowing of a star. That's one of the things that Lisa Pathfinder might be able to. Sorry, Lisa, which is going to be the the full thing that Lisa Pathfinder was testing technology for in the twenty thirties. We're a little way off. You know, it's <laughs> ten twenty years away, fifteen twenty years away. That. Uh, that's going to be looking at much lower frequency gravitational waves than LIGO does. That's much larger objects and things like stars being swallowed or small black holes maybe being swallowed by larger black holes is the kind of thing it might see. And and also the uh, the remnants of the Big Bang in gravitational waves. The, these relic gravitational waves um, are very, very low frequency. The, the gravitational wave equivalent of the cosmic microwave background. Yeah, and that's something that we might even be able to search for now. We've got the pulsar timing array, so they don't use laser beams that LIGO uses and that LISA will use. They use the, the, the pulses from uh, pulsars, these, these um, pulsating neutron stars, that come through to us very regularly, once every how many milliseconds or seconds, depends on the, on the particular object. A very, very accurate timing device. And if a gravitational wave passes through space, it changes the timing slightly. And so we'll see these pulses get slightly further apart and slightly closer together and so on in, in time. Um, and that will be the indication that the gravitational wave has gone through. And there are arrays now, it's been, you know, all, more automated arrays and, and lots of computer analysis, looking at these timings of pulsar signals to see whether there's evidence of gravitational waves passing through. So it's, um, uh, yeah, certainly exciting times in lots of these uh, un- unpredictable, um, we just think they might happen soon, discoveries. <laughs> in terms of other things in astronomy, it, it's been an exciting year for space missions this year, but it's not. I'm not quite sure there's many sort of on the horizon to have so many exciting things next year. It's a bit of a dry year. Yeah, that's right. Um, looking back at last year, we had some uh, some really uh, fantastic missions at the end of the Rosetta mission, mm. which I think is uh, my favourite space mission. Yeah. Uh, not only because it was a, a fantastic achievement to to send a spaceship to a comet and then land another spaceship from that first spaceship onto the the surface of the comet. 
um, but also that they had uh, a fantastic um, uh, PR and marketing mm. or um, engagement campaign with the Once Upon a Time videos, uh, the the cartoons where Rosetta and Philae, the little lander, they both had personalities. They were a brother and sister, and uh, they were just beautiful um, ways to engage uh, young kids and old kids like myself. Yeah, and it was nice to see the whole mission run so openly. I mean, all that those aspects of the control of the mission and 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 so on. The, a lot of the a lot of the science data is then is kept back for the science teams to look at for six months or a year. But the um, uh, the a lot of the the mission critical stuff you like the operations were so open and honest which was nice to yeah it to was see. it was very good um it was lovely to see this type of mm-hmm. um again this open and collaborative um feeling there was another landing which wasn't quite so successful which was uh exomars that we touched on briefly a couple of months ago this um uh, skier pirelli lander that, that made a, a less than successful landing on the surface yeah and um the i, I went to a, a, a talk the day that the announcement was made of what happened to Schiaparelli, and it was, uh, it was very, very sad actually that this this lander, um, when it landed, it exploded, and mm-hmm. so uh, the I think the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter took a, uh, a picture that showed a crater that was considerably bigger than Schiaparelli, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it looks like the the fuel um, combined and uh, just combusted. Yeah, it's um, something went wrong with the some well the radar systems that measuring its speed sort of worked very well, but I think it went into a spin and that triggered something that made it think it was maybe on the ground, so it it stopped firing its thrusters and then plummeted yeah. um, the last couple of kilometers, which is which is uh, unfortunate. But what we're told is that the things that went well, the things that worked, are the ones that really are important for the next big European landing on Mars, uh, which is the ExoMars rover which is going to launch in 2020. Yeah, and uh, there were some concerns that because the, the the bit of ExoMars that exploded, this Schiaparelli, was a prototype lander that the European Space Agency would just scrap the idea of sending mm. a lander. But actually, they learned valuable lessons from this mm. tragedy in some yeah. ways. Uh, it did bring back memories of Beagle 2, of course, from back in 2003, which which was due to to land and then make contact on Christmas Day on 2003 and, and never did. And this year we, we've discovered not only did it land, we knew it had landed safely on the surface. Some image analysis showed that actually it so very nearly worked. Yeah, it was uh, such a s- sad picture in many yeah. ways. It, um, uh, Beagle 2 had this uh, petal-like design to unfold its solar panels and just two of them got stuck on top mm. of each other. And so it just never got a- enough power to be able to send signals back. Yeah, and unfortunately all the communication was under them as well. Which yeah. Is, uh, I think a few lessons learned there on, on how to do that. But the, the ExoMars mission, the, the, the really successful bit has been the Trace Gas Orbiter, which is going to, over the next year or so, slowly lower its orbit into its science, its science phase and then be able to help support uh, the rover when it gets there in, in 2020, 2021, uh, when, it, when it gets there perhaps. Um, so there's now a veritable fleet of spacecraft around Mars. Yeah. Um, who knows when we'll get more missions from... Uh, well, Russia are involved in the ExoMars missions, but China may well send missions. India have got um, Mangalayan 2 on the on the mm. cards, I believe. So uh, who knows when that's uh, going to get there. Uh, other missions, we've got the end of Cassini. Um, we've got the Juno. is going to uh, go through the ring plane, go look at the rings of Saturn uh, in immense details and then plummet into the interior. 
um, that'll be exciting but also kind of sad end, end of an era for Cassini next year yeah and Cassini I remember seeing uh, the Cassini uh, TV footage with Lucy Green and mm. Adam Hart Davis uh, back in I think 2004 2005 yeah that's when I got there yeah. um, and so you know it's been 10, 11 years mm. um, 12 years by the time it ends its lifetime which is you know a very very long mission really uh, to be um, just hanging around around Saturn mm. so as you said earlier certainly an exciting time to be in astronomy well, that brings us to the end of 2016 for uh, Pythagorean astronomy. But uh, we'll be on air again uh, in 2017. So Happy New Year to everyone. Yeah, and uh, Merry Christmas. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. It was originally broadcast on Radio Cardiff as part of Pythagoras's Trousers. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. Music